Peter. Uh, and uh, today we're going to look at verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Text is printed in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So um, I came across a thing uh, that said for your New Year's resolution uh, for 2016, uh, you should run 2016 miles. Sounded like a good idea, right? So, of course, uh, uh, Friday morning, Marty and I got up, drank our New Year's coffee, and went to the gym. And, uh, of course, what happens on New Year's Day at the gym? You can't use any of the equipment because all these people are there. Now, I was complaining about that at the early service. And somebody came up and said, you should not complain about the New Year's resolutioners who come flock there in January, and then are done by Valentine's Day, because they're the ones who keep your dues low. <laughs> so, bring it. Come on. Resolve, get with the program. That would be, uh, that's going to keep my, keep my rates low. Anyway, um, the fact of the matter is, uh, New Year's resolutions, I, I, I went through... Uh, reading a list of them of, you know, what famous people are, are resolving to do, because that's what we do in America. We, we look at famous people. And then I was looking at, you know, all, all these things. Well, one of the things that's true about almost universally of New Year's resolutions is they're about making you the best you yet. I want to be the best Steve Shelby I can possibly be, right? Uh, and uh, whether it's losing weight or getting out of debt or whatever, you, you come at this with, and, and you know what, in some ways, uh, Megan, you can go ahead and put my notes up there, that, that's not all bad, right? Um, New Year's resolutions are more often than not involve some kind of self-improvement. Now, the, the problem with that is, is the first word in that is self self-improvement. So usually what we do is we resolve to lose weight or we resolve to... Um, uh, repent more, maybe. I would hope that you would resolve to do that. You would resolve to do uh, all sorts of things like that. But we almost never resolve uh, to uh, sacrifice more. We never resolve to die to ourselves more, right? That's, that's just not something that, you know, that doesn't seem like my best self. That sounds like that might hurt. And so why would I resolve to do something that might hurt, right? So, so, the, so the, the fact of the matter is, um, that's a, to me, that's, that's probably one of the r real reasons why we fail at our New Year's resolutions is because they're just about us and serving ourselves. So maybe, maybe, uh, uh, if there was something more than that, it would be, you know, it, it might spur us on to actually last through February, March, April. You never know, right? So, but in this text, what we read here is when he says to abstain from uh, uh, earth, uh, 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 lustful passions and, and that sort of thing, and he tells us how to live in front of, uh, of, of a watching world, you could kind of be tempted to think about this in terms of resolutions. But what Peter says here is he uses language of war. 
He talks about these, these passions that war against us, and he talks about the people that are in the culture surrounding this struggling little church there in, uh, or series of churches in Turkey, that as they, as they struggle, what he says to them is uh, um, they are uh, beset by enemies. And so the Christian here in this text has two, two, two sets of enemies. One that's internal, our desires that get the better of us and, and lead us to do things we shouldn't do, or the people that are outside in the world <coughs> who, as uh, Peter says, speak against us, talk poorly about us, and, and, and look down on our, our faith. And so what we need to do this morning to kind of get a handle on this, because this is, this is worth our time and energy this morning, is to look a little bit at the context that this, uh, that this uh, text comes to us and then draw out a couple of things that would help us in this uh, uh, dealing with our internal and our external enemies. So, first of all, a couple of contextual notes that drive this passage and all that comes after it. Joe did a great job last week on verses 9 and 10. And uh, just to, to, to remind you again, Peter says in verses 9 and 10, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And so what Peter wants us to understand is, and he's reiterating in this text over and over and over again, is that because we are united to Christ, we have his identity. Because we belong to Jesus, we have his 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 identity, and because we have his identity, that shapes everything about us. And so not only is that uh, something that is uh, essential to us, it is something that is uh, a part of our blessing. In in other words, the fact that Jesus Christ knows us, the fact that, that he looks upon us, that he owns us, that we belong to him, that we are named by him, that we are uh, a part of his, his family, that he has made us a royal priesthood, that he's made us a, a holy nation when we were, once were nothing. All that work of Christ uh, on our behalf changes everything about us and gives us our identity. So we have this eternal and glorious uh, identity in Christ <coughs> that transcends and supersedes race, ethnic origin, and national citizenship. So whatever... Um, Wherever you may be from, whatever language you may speak, whatever um, uh, food you may eat, whatever part of the world you may be from, the fact of the matter is, if you are in Christ, we are united because we have the same identity. We are a part of the same family. We are part of the same uh, 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 people because we are united together in what Christ has done for us. So this national citizenship or this holy citizenship that we have is rooted and established by the mercy of God. That is the thing that we were once a people without mercy, now we have mercy, lavish mercy. We have the favor of God even though we don't deserve it. We have the attention of God. We have the love of God. We have the grace of God all demonstrated to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those things are ours and because we have the mercy of God, That is the driver or the energy uh, in our war against uh, sinful passions. (coughs) We don't just resolve to crush these sinful passions. What we recognize is and what we remember is the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, and that shapes the way we deal with our passions. Now, these passions are not things that are just necessarily... uh, uh, bad things. They, They could be passions for things that are good, that we want too much. Um, but whatever it is, the, the gospel, the fact that we have the mercy of God, that we are united to him, that we belong to him, that our identity 
is hidden in Christ, our destiny is hidden in Christ, that is the energy that drives us to change our behavior, to, to war against these things that are internal, that are inside of us, that drive us uh, to live lives that aren't helpful or to live lives that don't reflect well upon, uh, upon our Redeemer. And so the mercy of God is the weapon we use against these sinful passions. We speak the gospel to ourselves. Next slide. Uh, but what, what we have to note about this is, is that Peter goes on to say something else about uh, who we are. He calls us the beloved, right? So of God and of the apostle, uh, that is that Peter loves these people, but they're also loved by God. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again for them. They belong to him. They're also sojourners and exiles. Remember, he starts this letter off to exiles, to uh, resident aliens, right? And so, so the fact of the matter is we are the holy people of God. We are a royal priesthood. We, we are the ones that belong to him. And at the same time, we live in a world that is not ultimately our home. Both of these identities are true, and, and both of these are ours, and they're both true at the same time. So in fact, you can't say that you have your identity in Christ, that you belong to him, that you're a part of the royal priesthood, the holy nation, a people uh, that belong to him, and at the same time, not be a, an exile and a sojourner, because what you recognize is, is that this world is not uh, your ultimate home. And so if you ever wake up one day and you think, you know what, I kind of don't fit in. Well, of course not. Of course not. That's not all bad to think that you don't fit in. When, when my kids were in school, I felt such pressure for them to fit in. Parents, I know you do. You're like, I want my kid to be cool. You know, I want them to have lots of friends. I want them to be relatively popular, right, and well thought of and and, and that sort of thing. And so that's why you don't let them dress a funny way. Like people think you're weird if you're dressed like that. You won't fit in. And we, we make that such a high priority. The, 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 the fact is, if your kid dresses weird or listens to weird music, they'll fit in with the kids who dress weird and listen to weird music, right? So, so you, don't really, you don't really have to worry about that. Maybe they don't fit in with what you like, but they'll, fit, they'll find somebody to fit in with, right? So the fact is, there's this quest going on in us all the time, and there's a tension between these two things, and that is the temptation to fit in where we are, to, 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 to look at this world and be tempted to think that it's our home, when what Peter has said is, no, 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 it's not your home, and you are exiles, and you are sojourners, and you should embrace that. Now, the, the, thing, the thing that is... Um, uh, great about this is, is because our identity is bound up in Christ, we don't really belong here. And this not belonging here leads us not to turn our backs on the world into some kind of closed community, but rather it turns us outward. Now that's, that's interesting and that's important because what we may tend to think is, oh, the culture's terrible. It's so terrible. This, this things going on out there are so bad. You know what? We just need to kind of close ourselves off, wall ourselves off from the culture, wall ourselves off from what's going on around us, and just kind of hunker down and be kind with each other and, and, and purify our teaching and purify our relationships and just have this kind of close-knit, tight thing, and we wait and we sit and wait either for us to die or... Uh, for Jesus to come back because everything out there is so terrible. Well, 
That's exactly the opposite of what Peter says here. What he wants us to come to grips with is, is because you're sojourners, because you're exiles, because your citizenship is in heaven, you are uniquely suited to bless the world. You're uniquely suited to bless the community where you are, even as that community resists it, and even as that community doesn't want you to do that. Next slide. Um, Peter David says this, the knowledge that they and we do not belong does not lead to withdrawal, but to the, they're taking their standards of behavior not from the culture in which they live, but from their home culture of heaven, so that their life always fits the place they are headed to rather than their temporary lodging in, in, this, uh, in this world. And that's one of the things that, is, that, is so, uh, that sets the church apart is that the church's conscience is bound by Jesus Christ and by his word, and so regardless of what might seem to be really cool and exciting or new or better or whatever, it must be measured against what we know of Jesus Christ and what we know of his gospel. And so that's what we live by. That's, that's what is, is true of us. That's, that's, what we bank, uh, that's what we bank our lives on. And so that is, um, um, that is, such, it is such an important thing for us to kind of lay our, our, to wrap our brains around. Now, one of the things that you may tend to think about that and be tempted to think is, you know, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus is Lord. I, I, I belong to him and, and uh, he, he owns me and... and and, and that may drive certain things about your behavior, and you may think, you know, um, as a result of that, I'm not really relevant. One of the things that happens to me often is people will say to me, you know, uh, why do you have long prayers in church? That doesn't seem very relevant. Why, why do you have responsive readings in church? That doesn't seem very relevant, right? Uh, why do you confess sin? That sure doesn't seem relevant, right? So, so why, why would you do that? And, and, and I've thought about this. Um, you know, what you, we could say is, well, we do those things because we think they're cool and because, and because we think that makes us special. But really, really, the fact of the matter is, the, I, I think they are absolutely relevant and they're always applicable and they're always pertinent to the situation we are in because they are eternal things. When we talk about redemption and forgiveness and we talk about uh, the authority of the scriptures and we, we talk about these, the, the, the nature of the atonement and, and, and those sorts of things, those things are eternal. They are always relevant. They always matter and they always speak to the core issues of our lives. And so there's never a time or never a place where we can get away from hearing about and knowing about the cross of Christ or the mercy of God or, or the work that he has done in, in forgiving us for, uh, of our sins, right? So, so these standards, though, and these things that we hold dear and these things that mark our lives are not just for us, not just, to, not, not just so that we lead better lives than those around us. Now, there's a temptation to think that, right? If you read the statistics, one of the things you find is people who go to worship regularly tend to be healthier. Some of you need to come to worship more. <laughs> right? But that's one of the things they say, that if you, people who worship more regularly, they, they're healthier. They're generally healthier. People who, who worship regularly uh, tend to have uh, 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 better relationships. People who, who worship regularly tend to have less debt. 
like I said, you guys need to worship more regularly, okay? <laughs> so that would, be, that would be a good thing. But, but the, <clears throat> so we, we kind of can tend to think that, you know, that we're, we're Christians, and what this supplies for us is, you know, we have the corner on being better than everybody else. Um, I came across a Christmas card uh, this Christmas that I gave to a dear friend of mine who, who struggles sometimes to think that her, her kids are, are great. And it's uh, a, a, several couples, you know, on camels and horses. They're clearly Middle Eastern. You know, it is a Christmas card after all. And there's one uh, horse here that has on its rump a bumper sticker that says, uh, our kid is a, a, a student at Bethlehem High School. And then on the camel over here, one of the other bumper stickers says, you know, our kid, you know, is a, uh, uh, um, an all-Israeli soccer player, you know, at Nazareth High School. And the people there are looking, and they say, oh, if it isn't Mary and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph come up, and their bumper sticker says, our son is God. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which kind of trumps your bumper sticker. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Anyway, uh, so, so, so the fact is sometimes we just kind of think we're, we're, we're leading these lives where, you know, because we are Christians, we know the best way to do everything. And so part of the, part of the attraction to the gospel to us is in a weirdly self-righteous way as we look around us and we think, you know, we're, we are better. We're living better. But that's not what Peter wants us to come to grips with, right? That these standards are not just for us, but they're precisely for the people in the culture that oppose or misunderstand us. So just like mercy is our weapon against these internal passions, declaring the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light, declaring the gospel, and good conduct is our weapon to win our enemies. Uh, now, these enemies, you have to recognize, they're speaking as well. They're speaking against Christians. They're, they're talking bad about the church, and they're talking about that it's this evil thing that is undermining the culture and that it's uh, undermining the authority structure in the empire and, and that there's all these terrible things that are true of the church. People were saying those things. And so what Peter says is, don't get in an argument with them. Don't, don't do anything like that. Just keep declaring Jesus and live a good life. A good, quiet, faithful life. And that'll take care of it. That, you know, that's, that, will, that, will, that will do uh, the, the purpose that God has for you. It'll cause people to take the gospel seriously and ultimately to have to uh, admit that, you know, these Christians are, are doing okay, doing a good thing. Um, and in the end, God gets, uh, gets uh, glory out of that. Now, sometimes this is criticism of the church is warranted. Peter will say in chapter 3, if you get beaten because you sinned, you know, because you had, because you had it coming, essentially, because you deserved it, then, then the fact of the matter is that's no credit to you. Well, the same thing is true for us. You know, when the church misbehaves, when Christians misbehave, there's, there's nothing particularly... Um, spiritual or good about that, we should, and, and the fact that we have to pay the consequences for those things, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the fact is, when the church simply quietly declares the gospel, 
When the church says, we love Jesus and Jesus loves us, and his love compels us to serve in this way, people see it. And even though they may not like it, and they may not like you, they have to take what you say then a little more seriously. Uh, I was reading uh, last year, Nicholas Kristof, he's a, uh, an editorial writer for the New York Times, and Kristof writes a lot about... Uh, people in war zones, people in uh, famine zones, people in, in the world, uh, in, the, in the underdeveloped world who struggle. And he said in this article, which was a, which was a really wonderful article, he said he's not a Christian, uh, and there's a lot about Christianity that he doesn't like. And there's a lot of Christians that he doesn't like. But one of the things that he's noticed is that when war sweeps into a country, when famine, when disease comes, most people scatter but the people who stay tend to be evangelicals and Catholic nuns. That they're there putting their lives at risk uh, in the midst of horrible circumstances. And he said, you know what? I have to take that seriously. I have to take them seriously. And by extension, he has to take their God seriously as well. So, Apparently, you know, Christians have always been viewed with some suspicion, distrust, and even hatred. They were spoken against. Next slide, please, Megan. Uh, and why? Well, uh, in the first century, you know, think about it. Their founder was executed by the empire. No wonder people thought uh, uh, they were strange. They called him, the one who was executed by the uh, um, uh, empire lord, and didn't, they didn't call Caesar lord. They called each other brother and sister, and this was often used to say that there was unnatural relationships in the church. It was even rumored that they were cannibals because in their meetings they ate the body and drank blood. Uh, and they rejected the gods of the cultures around them, and this had both social and economic consequences because all of these things set them apart and caused people to view them with suspicion and to think very poorly about them. Next slide. So what are you supposed, how do we deal with this when the church is viewed with suspicion? How do you deal with this when your faith is under attack? And how do you deal with this when, when your identity as the people of God actually sets you in opposition or in, at, at, at least in awkward situations with people? Well, first of all, we declare the excellencies, excellencies not of ourselves or even our church, but his excellencies. We talk about Jesus. And if you want to resolve for something this, this year, uh, let me urge you to resolve to talk about Jesus with people. Honestly. I mean, there, no, nothing could be uh, any better for us uh, 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 to do. This is important because verbal witness should be present in our lives. Now, because what you could take from this text is that people just need to see you doing good things and that's enough. But Peter says, we declare the excellencies of him who called us out of light, and we serve. We live quiet lives, we live good lives, and we do those things that draw attention, good attention, appropriate attention uh, uh, to the God who redeemed us, right? Jesus needs to be on our lips. Now, granted, that sometimes that's awkward and sometimes that's hard. And honestly, you know, in our culture, everybody likes God except, you know, for the people who don't. Uh, but, <laughs> but, 
But people say, you know, if you say, I want to thank God for hitting that free throw, or I want to thank God for kicking that field goal, or I want to thank God for whatever, most people are like, okay, his mama liked that, and she's glad that he said that. But when you say, I want to, I want to tell you about my Jesus, you got quiet. So um, Jesus needs to, be, uh, needs to be on our lips, okay? And so we couple this declaring with honorable lives that not only stop the talking against us, but in the end, even if begrudgingly, it causes our enemies to give glory to God. Wouldn't that be remarkable, right? The, one of the things early on uh, in the, uh, when we were forming the core group of this church, uh, one of the... Uh, men who was in the core group, was in the hospital. He had to go to the hospital and have his esophagus stretched. I was thinking about this because my dad had this done last week. And uh, except when this man had his esophagus stretched, they broke it. They ruptured it, which is serious business. It's a terrible, terrible thing when that, when that happens. And so he was sick. They had a million kids and one on the way. And... Uh, this couple across the street just saw what we were doing. Now, what do Christians do when there's a, when, when there's a crisis? We, we bring pies. You know, we, we, we bring barbecue. We, we uh, sweep your floors. We wipe your kids' noses. You know, we, uh, we'll cut your grass. We'll, you know, we'll do those kinds of things, right? And so these people are across the street, and they're watching that, and they're thinking, you know, that, it's really weird that they're starting another new church in the West End, but, you know, that looks like that could be a pretty cool church. And they came, and they were part of the core group. So, so, the, so the fact is, as people see these, the, this, this behavior and see just the quiet, simple life, not drawing attention to self, but pointing to Jesus, it has its effect. So honorable and holy living is not simply for us, but for the glory of God, and the observers uh, of our conduct, right? And so uh, one of the things that, that we need to recognize is, is that it's okay that people are watching us, and it's okay that people are, are checking to see is what they say is true, is it being manifest in their behavior. And that doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you never ha- uh, ha- fail or that you never need to ask for forgiveness. In fact, that only furthers the gospel when we repent before people and we ask them to forgive us. Next slide. So what kind of conduct then is he talking about? Well, moral living, first of all. So so no one's going to take your Jesus seriously if you lie, cheat, and steal at work, right? Secondly, it means living as good citizens. And Peter's going to outline for us in the rest of this book what that means. And a big chunk of that is submission to authority, right? Uh, even authority that's not good or gentle and even unjust is ironically at the top of the list that he's going to call on us because we belong to Christ to submit to. Those are going to be some great sermons, uh, as we all are going to work hard at thanking the policemen for our speeding tickets, right, when, uh, for uh, keeping us safe. So, so make your resolutions carefully and prayerfully, but make them with an eye to those who might view you with suspicion because of your faith, right? So as you think about uh, what, how the gospel might impact you this year, recognize that it's not just about making you a better person is about reflecting the glory of God to those people who may be even suspicious of Christians and the church. So think about that, that actually the work of God in you 
and for you, the gospel becoming alive in you might not just be for your sake, but be for the sake of someone who's watching, someone who's observing. As we come to the Lord's table today, we have an opportunity uh, to declare to the world the death of Christ uh, for our sins. So listen now uh, to these words of institution as they come to us from Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 14 through 20, and then verse 29 to 30. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's confess our sins together by using this great prayer of confession from uh, John Wesley. Let's confess our sins together. Forgive them all, O Lord, our sins of omission and our sins of commission, the sins of our youth and the sins of our riper years, the sins of our souls and the sins of our bodies, our secret and more sins, our sins of ignorance and surprise, and our more deliberate and presumptuous sin, the sins we have done to please ourselves and the sins we have done to please others, the sins we know and remember and the sins we have forgotten, the sins we have striven to hide from others and the sins by which we have made others offend you. Forgive them, O Lord, and forgive them all for his sake, who died for our sins and rose for our justification and now stands at thy right hand to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his followers. This table belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the one who set it, and he's the one who invites you to taste and see his goodness, his love, and his mercy. That confession of sin was a pretty direct and uh, straightforward confession of our sin. 
And John's declaration of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, an even more powerful declaration of the work of Christ on our behalf. Jesus Christ says to us today that when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And by proclaiming his death, we're not just simply saying something that was sad in the fact that he died. What we are saying is is that our sin has been taken away by the Lamb of God. And so this table is not for people who keep all their resolutions. And this table is not for people who who never make mistakes or maybe publicly, uh, occasionally even blow it. This table is for people who need and know and love the death of Christ for their sins, who embrace the fact that Jesus Christ made atonement, atoned for their sins, and that he now gives them his life, his identity, his name, his grace, his mercy. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you know you have no other hope, no other mercy except in him, and you've proclaimed that to a body of believers somewhere, he invites you to taste his goodness, to be reminded again of the scope and the depth and the breadth of his love and his atoning death for your sins. Uh, As the elders come forward uh, to assist me, uh, let me remind you that the outer ring uh, is wine, the inner rings are grape juice, and the bread on this side is bread that is gluten-free if you require that.